Welcome to the green scene. So we have, um, I guess, one little article that I found uh, for the green scene this week. What's interesting is this was actually pre-COVID from Bill Gates. So it's dated April 5th of 2019. But, uh, so it's from a while back, but I just, I really liked what he had to say. And, and this is also from the same guy who actually predicted a pandemic like COVID happening way, way, way in advance of it happening. So whatever you might think of Bill Gates and Microsoft, uh, he's a, a smart guy and you should pay more attention to him. I think he actually, he's, he's pretty much a philanthropist now anyway. He's kind of sold most of his shares, if not all of them, from Microsoft now anyway. So he's happily retired from that and doing other stuff. But yeah, this is from uh, growerspoint.com. <laughs> Uh, so it's about a little bit about the, I guess, growing side of regenerative landscaping. But basically what Bill Gates was getting into is um, some interesting information on key things that that he feels people as a whole should be doing to help either restore the landscape or uh, slow the destruction down or add something of value to it, you know? And I thought that was very interesting because I, I didn't see him as being a, uh, I guess, a green thumb type of person, but obviously it's, it's meant enough to him that he's still looking at this stuff. So I thought that was really cool. So one thing is I know a lot of people, Dan, you probably heard this, uh, everybody's complaining about cows. Oh, they produce all the methane and it's uh, they're contributing to the greenhouse gas problem and blah, blah, blah. And okay, to a point, they do. But Bill Gates is also saying, don't focus just on the cows. There's a lot of other things that do as well. So that's kind of, it's nice to hear that somebody's not just pointing the finger at one thing. There's a lot of different things going on. Soil holds more carbon than the atmosphere and all plant life combined. What's really cool is Dan was just doing this episode about soils, and here we're finding out that despite everybody wanting to plant trees and all this other stuff, the soil is actually more important in the grand scheme of the carbon sequestration than the atmosphere and all the plants in the entire world. Uh, so when the soil is disturbed, the carbon is released into the atmosphere. So all these things like the tilling and the... Um, humans doing all their developing and everything else and a lot of other things happening are all adding to this carbon being released in the atmosphere with the soil just being disturbed. And so he's a, a strong advocator of no-till and, and a whole bunch of other methods to reduce the amount of soil disturbance, I guess. Deforestation not only removes carbon sinks, it actually releases the carbon from the disturbed soil. So that that's, goes along with what I just said, is these places in the tropics where they're cutting down the rainforest to put in farmland and that kind of stuff, um, that's not just removing the carbon, it's actually disturbing the soil and removing it out of the soil as well. Uh, and same thing up here. I mean, we've got our, our lumber industry and all the rest of that too. And I'm not saying we, we have to cut it cold turkey because humans need a lot of these things to, to live, but there's got to be ways to do it a little bit more environmentally friendly, I guess. Um, I don't know. A lot of these guys are going back to logging with, with horses and stuff like that. So they're not bringing big equipment in to, uh, 
smash down everything in the woods and maybe that things like that might be a a better answer i don't know you you want to be you'd like to hope that people can be more sustainable about it instead of doing it for now and then it's totally destroyed try to find more sustainable methods to do it because we can't at least at this point in time we can't do without some of these things so you can't just say oh you know save the trees and and don't don't use any more wood products or i mean it's just not realistic right as much as i love all that stuff um I have to realize, you know, people have to live too. So yeah, definitely trying to make it more sustainable. Dan hit it on the nose. He also had this really cool thought about there's, I guess he found some company that is able to, they're they're basically microscopic nitrogen factories that can uh, replace the current fertilizers that are out there because if they're on a, a microscopic level, it reduces or it releases less nitrous oxide into the air. Which and part of this whole climate change thing. So I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Creating and utilizing the straw of plants with lo- longer root systems to absorb more CO2 from the soil. It's, it's just hilarious how this all goes back to your soils thing, Dan. Um, but anyway, basically, in a nutshell, the more root systems you have underground, there's more carbon sequestration going on within those root systems. So he was saying even uh, some of these guys developing their, like, let's say a wheat crop, if they develop a wheat, a strain of wheat that has a deeper root system, well, it's sequestering more carbon as well as it's also being healthier for the plant. They're more, uh, they survive more rigorous situations and, you know, they can survive drought or all this kind of stuff. So multiple reasons for that too. So I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. He's also found, um, he's really on this micro thing. So the, the micro, microscopic nitrogen factory, but then also the, uh, there's lab-grown palm oil made from microbes, which could replace the palm oil plantations. Because, of course, palm oil is becoming, like it's used in almost everything now. It's not just the food products. It's like you've got it in makeup. You've got it in all kinds of uh, factory-built materials. So again, you can't just say, oh, stop the palm oil plantations. But again, if you can find a lab-grown substitute, maybe there you can stop the destruction of some of the palm, uh, the forests where they're replanting the palm, palm trees, palm oil. Um, because apparently this goes back to, this was again 2019, but supposedly, uh, quote unquote, the destruction of Borneo's forests resulted in the largest single year increase in emissions in over 200 years. That's just from that one one thing. Uh, so that's pretty tremendous. And he figures improving methods to keep food fresh longer would would help. And I was trying to figure out how that would be because it didn't relate to some of this other stuff. But basically, um, there's a few companies that have created an invisible barrier that doesn't affect the taste of food because roughly one-third of produced food is lost or wasted each year. So by doing this, if you could save that wastage, you can feed more people, be farther ahead of the game, and not be uh, producing so much of this uh, this waste every year. It It is crazy, though. Like, I always get to thinking of, with, you know, big chain grocery stores, uh, as an example, like how... And I, I understand because you don't want to be liable if 
somebody ate, you know, food scraps or like, you know, food that's, you know, a little bit expired or. Yeah, if they got poisoned or whatnot, something. Right? But, but, um, but still, it, it is crazy, though, like so much food that gets wasted from grocery stores just because, oh, it's got a little bruise on it. So that's yeah. eh, no good. I got to completely throw it out. But, and it's the thing, too, that I think some grocery stores I've noticed has taken the initiative of trying to. I mean, it's them still being able to sell product, but at a reduced price to at least still get some money out of it versus completely throwing out. But, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of have their little section of, you know, things completely reduced, like not completely reduced, but like, you know, a substantial uh, reduction in price uh, for, you know, bruised fruit or slightly expired or about to be expired, like, you know, day before expiration date for certain products and I mean, that's a good start, but again, there's just so, <laughs> so much other food wasted. And again, that's on, at, you know, at the grocery store, kind of in an urban setting. Whereas, oh, yeah, because there's, it happens at all different points in the chain, right? I mean, yeah. you always have something as a, as a grower. There's some that just, you can't even send it to market quite often. If it, at least it's if a diversified farm, um, maybe you can feed it to your livestock or do, or do something else with it. Um, then you have on the other end, like you're saying, grocery stores and, and restaurants and whatnot. Um, to a point, they're starting to change regulations and, and figure out ways that they can offer um, food that's left at the end of the day to, um, like something like the mustard seed or like a like a homeless shelter or kitchen or something like that, so they can they can pass it on. And okay, fine, they're not really getting any money for it, but they would have had to throw it in the dumpster anyway. So why not? pass it on forward to some other people that can use it and uh, develop a sense of community. People are more likely to support a business if they're doing something like that. But that's one thing. But yeah, I just thought this whole interesting thing of um, preserving the food that's there with this, you know, invisible film um, actually turns out to be pretty cool because if roughly one third of produced food is lost each year, if this can help, I don't know what to per- what percentage, but if it can help at all reduce that wastage, I think that's a good thing. Like it could it could mean anything from increasing longevity. So for transportation, for things that do have to be transported, maybe they last better as far as delivery to different places, and also for for people purchasing if things are um, sitting on the shelf longer, maybe they don't have to put an. Uh, as early an expiry date on some things. I don't know. So anyway, that was cool. Um, Collective crop storage. This was another one. So it it disperses the cost of storage between farmers and prevents gluts in the market. So instead of having, uh, you know, rock bottom pricing when there's a whole glut of grain or something on the market, by having this collective crop storage, now they can siphon out product as it's needed and the cost is between a, a bunch of farmers in the group so they can actually afford to have something like this. And uh, then it, it, it works in multiple ways. So it, it gives the farmer uh, farmers uh, consistent income instead of these ups and downs all over the place. And uh, it provides a steady flow of products so that hopefully the consumers are not having periods where they go without and periods that they have way too much. And um, so I thought that was pretty cool. But basically, what uh, Bill Gates said is there's no magic single cure-all and multiple strategies are required if we're going to work on this whole uh, world 
you know, multiple issues thing. Cause I think that's a, a thing now is people jump on the bandwagon saying plant more trees or quit producing emissions from your vehicles or whatever it is. But you know, there's, there's gotta be a whole combined effort of, of multiple things. And you also have to do it in ways that are realistic. Like uh, Bill Gates is talking about, you know, we, we, as humans, we do have to use uh, some of these products, services, amenities, and we can't just cut them off and expect people to keep on living. So you have to find ways to either gradually wean people off or have uh, multiple substitutes to offer or, or just, just change things a little bit at a time instead of these big drastic changes that um, could cause anarchy, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's from the, that's from the Bill Gates. So I thought it was cool because everybody of course knows him for the, the computer, the software, all that kind of stuff. And here he's uh, definitely taking a vested interest in the, in the world and the, the food component of things as well. So obviously that shows there's, there should be a great importance placed in it. Oh yeah, for sure. No, that is, that's cool. Yeah. Just, (laughs) it's always, yeah, it's always cool to hear all the things he's kind of getting involved in or trying to shine a light on. So that's awesome. Hi, welcome to the plant adventure guide. Anyway. So I thought again, because it's, it's still winter here, we would talk about, um, a close cousin to the red osier dogwood that we talked about last time, bunchberry. Cornus canadensis, or as I like to say, corn can or can corn. Yeah, <laughs> that's how you remember it. But um, I love this little guy because he's a, a cute little ground cover relative of the red osier dogwood, but has a lot of the same features. Um, definitely still has those shiny green leaves. Uh, they turn uh, kind of a, a crimson or burgundy color in the fall. So they've got some added year-round aesthetic appeal and they've got nice uh fairly actually large white flowers central in this whorl of about six leaves in the late spring early summer and then they gradually change to first to green droops they're actually droops not berries um and then they become bright bright red uh, cluster little berries in the fall and the berries are edible now just because they're edible i'm not saying they are fabulous, but if you're in a situation where you're starving, let's say, you can eat them. Um, some people actually do like the mild tasting ones. Uh, generally, the more north you get, my understanding is they have a little bit more of an apple flavor to them. And then down south, they pretty much don't taste like anything, but um, they got a little bit of crunch from the seeds, but you can eat the seeds too. So yeah, you can you can eat them if you like as well. Um, and they are small enough; they do spread with uh, underground rhizomes, so they'll create a nice little carpet of of these plants. But you can have them in a uh, medium to larger size planter or like a large pot as well, and they'll uh, overwinter that way as long as you're growing them in shade, semi shade. And they like a little bit more on the moist side. They don't want to be sopping wet all the time, but they do like that bit of added moisture because quite often they're growing in woodland environments but they would be really cute in a in a planter if you had a had the right spot for it one of the cool things i i actually just recently discovered this i didn't know this before 
but it's actually got one of the quickest snap actions for releasing pollen out of any plant. So um, I really, I, I can't get this vision out of my head of these poor little bees and stuff going there to get their nectar pollen and then just getting flung off into space <laughs> or something. <laughs> I'm not sure how that works, how the, how the little insects that pollinate avoid getting catapulted, but apparently this snap action for releasing pollen takes place in less than half of a millisecond, so they, it's really hard to even record it on film. So, yeah, it's just crazy. But, um, but yeah, there are little native bees and flies that manage to pollinate them. So, somehow, I guess they have it figured. Um, they make great food for uh, the native birds. And I didn't really... There's a few things medicinally they're mentioning, but because none of it's really supported by scientific evidence, I didn't really want to get into it. But, mm. uh, but, yeah, the bunchberry, I think, is a cool little plant that's underestimated and uh, you can definitely use it on a smaller scale you don't have to think of oh my god i don't have a huge woodland area or whatever you can still if you got a shady spot up against the side of your house or as an understory plant as long as there's moisture there uh, it'll work underneath other plants or like i say in a in a larger planter as long as it's not out in the bright sun and you remember to water it it it's it'll be great yeah, I don't know uh, if you have anything to add about uh, the cute little bunch berry or not, Dan. I just know it was a pain to try and grow them sometimes when we were working together. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, okay, so that's something. I've, I've got more experience with that now. So yeah, bear berry, or uh, sorry, bunch berry. They both start with a B, so I get mixed up sometimes. Uh, bunch berry is one of the native plants that requires cold stratification, which a stratification means it needs a period of something. So in this case, cold stratification means it needs a period of cold to prepare it for germination. And then once you remove it from that cold stratification, then it wakes up and it can go into its growing mode. Uh, there's other plants that actually require a warm stratification period, or then there's the ones that are really fancy and need a warm and then a cold stratification period. But anyway, um, this particular one for the most part, if you're looking at, um, if you plant the seed fresh, you actually might be able to get away with no stratification at all. But if the seed's been sitting for a month or more, then you need to do cold stratification, like anywhere from 90 to 120 days worth in a fridge. Moist, you've got to keep it moist. If you let the seed dry out, then it won't be any good. So I wouldn't suggest freezer because freezers suck moisture out of everything. But yeah, if you do that and then bring it back to the warm and make sure you have the right light conditions as well. I've been getting them popping up all over the place. I found that very interesting as well. And yeah, as we get into some of these podcasts, we'll be exploring some of the growth habits of a, a lot of these native plants because a lot of them are quite different than the average vegetable garden plant. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, good point, Dan. This concludes another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. Please leave a comment, subscribe. For more information, go to fescue.ca and mmgardens.ca.